Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello, today I'd like to welcome Nishala Nienda to the podcast. Nishala is an adjunct faculty member teaching in the Department of Contemplative Psychology at Naropa. She also practices and teaches Tibetan medicine and acupressure. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm good. Yay. So this might be the first time we get to like do a little bit of idea blending of East meets West in a more medical lens, I guess. So it's really fun to like just go there. So just to get started, I've noticed you're a practitioner of many different modalities. Can you just let us know what is the difference of practice between those two, like a Tibetan medicine, acupuncture, Ayurvedic medicine, all that stuff? Sure. Well, let me just give like a background of what Tibetan medicine is, Please. essentially. Yeah. So if you go all the way back to ancient Greece, really, and you look at the influences of the three humors, you see that starting to influence the Persian medicines, the Unani medicines. And then as the people came down into India and they brought that, and then that sort of became Ayurveda. So Ayurveda okay. really had these three humors is often how it's translated. But really what it does is it goes back to those Greek basic elemental understandings of yeah. the body. And then you have to start to consider about the whole Silk Road. So the Silk Road really kind of went all the way to the east. So mm. all the way to Mongolia, China, Thailand, Vietnam, the yeah. whole thing. So you have an influence of this animistic Taoist system. Okay. And they're very actually similar to a lot of Tibetan high tantric teachings mm -hmm. on the elements. And so you have this influence of the five elements that you see in Chinese medicine yeah, in a classical sense of Chinese medicine, not what's modern TCM today, but what was, you know, original pre-1959 revolution. So mm -hmm. you have that influence and then you have the influence of Ayurveda and you have this whole Silk Road happening basically right across Tibet in upper Mongolia, all through the lower part of Russia. Wow. So they also had their own animistic shamanistic system. Yeah which was more based on the elements. And then in the 7th century, Guru Rinpoche, or Padmasambhava, mm -hmm. was a great Indian pundit, and he came in and introduced Tibetan medicine. But prior to that, there were actually two physicians, a male and a female. Some say they were brother and sister. Some say they were um, a couple, like a consort situation. Mm -hmm. Most historical accounts have them as a brother and a sister. Okay. And they kind of studied in what's known as modern-day Pakistan now at a great university under Atisha, actually. Okay. And then they went into Tibet, and they started doing all of their healing work. And what happened was, of course, the king got word, mm -hmm. invited them to the palace. Mm -hmm. And then, like you do in the second and the third Become century, a royal he, physician or he, something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He offered his daughter in marriage 
to okay. the mail because that's what you did back then. So that sort yeah. of began the line. So that was about all the way back into the second and third century. Mm. So you have this animistic, shamanistic system with a little bit of influence of these three humors. And then you come into the seventh century and through the 8th century, and Buddhism is really established. So it's essentially like taking Taoism and the Greek three humors, Persian medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, animistic, shamanistic medicine, throwing it in the blender, and then overlaying it with Buddhist psychology. So that's Tibetan medicine. Okay. So I primarily practice Tibetan medicine, Mm -hmm. and that's because that's what I decided to do, to go in-depth. But when I was first introduced to it, it didn't really exist in the U.S. So I had to kind of piecemeal it together to, like, through these the other. Yeah, I had okay. to kind of find my way there huh. through these other systems until I could finally like just move to India and study. Wow, super cool. So I hear you talking about Chinese medicine having five elements, but Tibetan medicine has four? Five. five. They do have five? Mm-hmm. And I know that Tibetan medicine uses air. And ether? Yeah. And Chinese don't? We don't use ether. That's okay. an Ayurvedic thing. Okay. They use air, but we translate this as lung. So okay. as much as I can when I teach, I try and stay with the Tibetan terms. So wind is a better translation than air. Okay. So it's like if you think about like your inner channels, for example, that you're working with when mm-hmm. like you're doing yoga or meditation, you're working with your inner winds. Yeah. So that's the same thing as saying okay. you're working with your prana. Yeah, like the inner climates. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at the moment, you are an adjunct faculty member at Naropa, but you only teach in the fall is what you told me. Can you just tell us what exactly do you teach when you teach? So I teach Western anatomy, and that is a required class for the yoga studies. And then it's an optional class for anybody else that wants to take it. Okay. And then I teach nutrition. So it's primarily... Mm based in Western nutrition and understanding the biology of our microbiome and our body and how it functions and how we digest. But I introduced the concepts of Asian medicine Uh as an individualized approach to nutrition because no two bodies are the same. And so this concept that we see in the West of everyone should just eat this and be fine or avoid all of this and be fine doesn't really work if you look at ancient medicine. So I'm trying to teach my students how to blend those two things together. Mm. Understanding that the body reacts to different foods differently because of the person you are and like what kind of characteristics you have. And I feel like that's essential because do you feel like that is generically idealized in Western medicine or that people just come in, they have a symptom and there's like this one cure should fix all sort of approach? I think it's due to the fact that Western systems are really interested in categorizing. Okay. So it's not that we're not. We certainly have way excessive categorization for foods well beyond what Western does. But like if you're looking at a substance from a Western point of view, you're looking at the active compounds Mm. and what that does on the cellular tissue, but they're not taking into account the subtle body and Uh, the subtle mind and how that works inside each individual person. Yeah. Okay, can you say more about the subtle body? Like what actually, subtle mind, subtle body, what is that in this sort of version of what you're talking about? Well, if you want to think about the subtle body, it's it's said in Tibetan medicine that you have to have all five elements plus karma mm. in order to be incarnated at all. 
So even to obtain the precious human body, you have to have all five elements in karma. So based off of your karmic sort of driving you, you're going to choose certain parents and situations. Mm -hmm. They're going to give you some genetic factors, which are going to influence your inner elements. Mm -hmm. And then also you're going to have the diet and the behavior that your mother has during your pregnancy is going to influence it. The outer environment is going to influence it. And then very early on in life, your life situations are also going to influence it. So Mm -hmm. family systems, psychology, all of that has an impact on the choices we make. So somebody could be inherently one type of being and perhaps their family system either didn't recognize or support that. And so they made a choice in order to compensate on a psychological level. Okay. And so they could shift that. So they may have like one sort of essence of a a few elements that are more dominant, but they might be shutting them down. Hmm. Yeah. And when they do that, they're not able to like optimally be functioning on a body, mind, spirit level. Yeah. So what we want to do is we want to identify who are you intrinsically mm-hmm. and then how do we support that? Mm. And that's not a question that's very often asked in Western medicine. I think they're starting yeah. to, yeah. but I think that that's um, a foundational approach that you see in all traditional forms of medicine. Yeah. Seems kind of funny to like walk into a Western medical position and they're asking you, how are you feeling today? Like that being a valuable point of interest to diagnose something mm-hmm. or, or just like, how are you feeling in your life in this moment? Exactly. And, yeah. you know, it's not uncommon for someone to come into my office and say, you know, I'm really just feeling like I'm working on my throat chakra and it's all about my throat chakra. So like that's a more subtle <laughs> body experience. Yeah. And I'm not going to look at you like you have two heads and you're from like somewhere I've never identified before. I'm like, yeah, tell me more about that. Yeah. How do you experience that in your body? What does that look like for mm-hmm. you? And then I can explain to them about the channels that influence that yeah. and how that's related to like the decisions they make and the behaviors that will help to enhance yeah. the movement of that and so on and so forth. <laughs> so subtle body is like very big almost. Well, there's 84,000 different channels. What? Yeah. Oh boy. So that's another podcast. Yeah. It's a Jeez. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So before we keep going, cause I, I just have all these like random questions I want to ask you all of a sudden, but can you just tell us about your journey through the medicine and through the school? And then how did you find your way to Naropa? I grew up in Colorado, and so I kind of always knew about Naropa. And then I left in my early 20s and just kind of hung out on the East Coast. I wasn't really ready to go to college. Yeah. And I had been receiving classical five-element acupuncture in the Worsley tradition since I was 15. Yeah. Wow. And, okay. And so that was like a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. And I decided that I wanted to study that, so I needed to get, have an undergrad first. So I decided I would go to Naropa. Okay. So I had this idea that I would go to Naropa and study yoga, actually, and because I was really into yoga. And I got to Naropa, and I took an introduction to Tibetan medicine course that Uh-oh. was taught by um, a man named Dr. Philip Weber. Okay. And he had been studying with someone for about 20 years, 25 years at that time. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is kind of weird and Buddhist, but like, it's kind of interesting. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I'll, I'll continue. So then I took the second semester of it and this doctor came for a visit Okay. and we were all supposed to bring our urine. So we have a very special urine diagnosis. Not, not your normal class assignment. Not your normal <laughs> class assignment. No. So we all had to bring our urine. Okay. And this guy like literally looked at me 
and looked at my urine, looked at me, looked at my urine, didn't say a word, didn't smell it, didn't ask me a question, didn't read my pulse, didn't look at my tongue. Mm-hmm. And he nailed it. He was like, you don't sleep well. You eat too much pasta. I mean, he was like, you're anxious. I mean, he just <sighs> like completely saw through me by looking at my urine. Give me that back. <laughs> I was astounded. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I was like, I want to know how to do that. So I didn't mm. realize at the time how difficult that would be. So I switched my major to interdisciplinary. Okay. And then I did a study abroad in Nepal. And I kind of stayed over there for about six months. And I studied Ayurvedic gynecology and Tibetan medicine. Wow. On the side of my regular Naropa core studies wow. for the abroad time. And then I came back and I wrote my thesis as an interdisciplinary student. And that was based on the body, mind, and spirit and how you have to treat all three of those together or you don't have a genuine healing. Then I went and I was essentially bringing Tibetan doctors to Colorado and studying with them mm-hmm. in an apprenticeship style yeah. learning. And I received permission to start treating people But I felt like I didn't want to be jack of all trades, master of none. And at that point, I had finally sort of become Buddhist. And my root guru essentially ordered me to India and told me. You just got to go all of a sudden. (laughs) Yeah. It was one of those, you know, he said, now's the time to go. And I was like, yeah, 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 you know, money and this and that. And he was like, no, you need to go. And I was like, well, da, 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 da. And he like leaned forward in his chair and he was like, you go, you go now. Oh, wow. And he's not like that. That's yeah. not the nature of my teacher. Hmm. And so like every hair stood up on end and I was like, oh. Maybe I should go. I have to go. <laughs> like it was no question at that yeah. point. I just had yeah. to go. So I went, I essentially moved to India. Okay. And I was there for... Two years, I'd met and married my husband, who's also a Tibetan doctor. Awesome. And then when I was expecting my first child, I decided that I wanted to come home because I had lots of cravings for, like, burritos and stuffed grape leaves. There's no burritos in Tibet? No. Well, in India. Oh, in India? Yeah. Bummer. Yeah. All right. So That's a thing. Yeah. It's a real (laughs) thing if you're pregnant. So I brought myself back, and a school had opened up in the East Coast that was doing, at that time, in-classroom training, and that's the Shangsheng Institute of Tibetan Medicine. Very cool. So I studied there. They gave me a test and let me in halfway through the program because I had studied for seven years at that point. And then I studied another two and a half years with them. I took my final exams with them, which qualified me to go to Tibet itself, where I took a series of final exams and a three-month internship at the Qinghai Tibetan Medical College in Amdo, Tibet. Okay. So it was a long, like, 10-year sort of process, but it really kick-started at Naropa. Yeah. And I always really wanted to come back to Naropa. So you graduated from Naropa. I did. And then you left to go study deeper medicine, came back to the United States, Mm -hmm. then somehow ended up back. Yeah. Uh. And, you know, I... I was asked by someone if I was interested in doing the anatomy class, and I actually really love anatomy. Okay. So I was like, yeah, that would be fun. And so I started teaching the anatomy, and then the nutrition course came open, and I was like, absolutely, <laughs> I want to teach that one. So, Mine. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. Very cool. So you said something about like going to India and learning gynecology and Ayurvedic medicine at the same time? Well, that was in Nepal, and Nepal. that was when I was – I went with Naropa on a study abroad. Okay. And so while I was there, I didn't want to waste any time. So on the side of Sounds my... Sounds like you never wasted time. <laughs> You're just all over the place. Well, I, you know, I was one-pointed. It was like I wanted, yeah. to, I wanted to learn. 
I like it. So I studied with a woman, Dr. Shrestha, okay. Sarita Shrestha. She was the first woman Ayurvedic doctor in all of Nepal, actually. Wow. Okay. Yeah, she's a pretty amazing bodhisattva. So I observed her in the Ayurvedic government hospital in Kathmandu when I could on the side Mm -hmm. of my studies when I was a study abroad student. And then on the other days, like once a week, I would go to the Tibetan clinic and I would sit in there and I would learn there. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how do gynecology and Tibetan Ayurvedic medicine come together? Well, I mean... In Tibetan medicine, there's an entire discipline of it. I mean, there's a whole chapter called the female chapter. And actually, if you look at the historical accounts of Tibetan medicine, mm-hmm. the Mensikong, which is most well-known mm-hmm. in Tibet, was really opened because they saw the Dalai Lama at the time, really saw the fifth Dalai Lama, that there was a need. And so they opened the Mensikong in order to serve women because previously... Nice. of the doctors were all monks. Mm -hmm. And so they had vows that they couldn't actually like touch women. Interesting. And so the Dalai Lama saw this as a problem because women have their own unique medical needs. And so for that reason, he said, we have to train women. There have always been Tibetan physicians that are women because there were two lines of training. There was like a lineage-based training, Mm -hmm. which is most of the way that I learned. And that's no longer sort of recognized or accepted. Because they're trying to sort of standardize it so that the Western medicine can kind of see the validity in it. And in order to do that, they have to standardize the curriculum. So that's not really recognized as widespread, but it would be like my uncle was a doctor, so he taught me. Or my father was a doctor, there were no sons, so he taught me. That kind of a thing. So it kind of always had been passed down. And in fact, there's a woman in California whose both her parents were doctors. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So what do you think is the biggest difference between Western and Eastern medicine? Because it sounds like you're doing Eastern medicine in the West, but you also know some Western medicine as well. With your studies and your vast knowledge, what do you find is the difference between the two? I think the primary difference is in perception. So perception on a really subtle level of Mm -hmm. who people are and really trying to get to know that. Mm -hmm. And that's on a spiritual level, a physical level, an emotional level. I think that the challenges that Western medical faces is, one, it's time. So they're stuck with limits of coding and having to have a huge patient load in order to, like, satisfy the requirements for insurance and how many people. So it's a revolving door. So it's like how much time you actually get to spend with someone? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then also there's something that happens in Eastern medicine when, when you have a perception and you open yourself to the gates of perception on subtle levels, that automatically requires you to have a place of vulnerability in yourself and have a more open-hearted situation. And Mm -hmm. that can be really devastating when people are terminal and they're dying or they're suffering greatly. And so I think that the system of training in the West from my Western doctor friends, they basically train you to be inhuman. I mean, the whole internship factor for Um, like emotionless. Yeah. Because you just have to get the job done. You got to cut, you got to like fix it. You save, save, save. Yeah, and it's really, really hard for the ones you can't save. Mm. And nobody gets out of here alive, so. Facts. Yeah. Yep. 
And so we have to be able to face that. And I think now they're starting to think about that with like hospice care. And yeah. And I know that Naropa Contemplative MDEV program really looks at that more in depthly. And I, I yeah. think that's super important. Becoming a chaplain and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also think that Western medicine is really into facts. And so sometimes yeah. when you have diseases that don't fit into a category, you know, they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's like an unsecure, insecure, groundless place. Well, if huh. you're in the Eastern system, you can be in the groundless place and still be firmly rooted. Yeah. And that's a totally different concept. It's an emotional, spiritual consciousness that allows you to be present and know that the answers may not be really evident. And then you have to just go back to the elements. Like if you go back to the elements again and again, you never leave the elements. Mm -hmm. The elements don't change. They're the same. How they interact in the body might change. Mm -hmm. The pathology might change, but the elements remain the same. So if you can become super intimate with the elements and you can recognize the laws of nature, then you can interact in a different way that Tibetan medicine and Ayurvedic medicine and Chinese medicine, Mm. shamans can, that Western medicine can because it doesn't fit into a category of fact, right? So think about wind, right? So wind can be like sharp and cutting, or it can be smooth and soft, mm-hmm. right? Water can be boiling. It can uh-huh. be frozen solid. Mm-hmm. So it's about knowing the variations on a really subtle level. Yeah. Can you just go ahead and tell us what the five elements actually are? Sure. It depends on if you're doing astrological or you're doing like elemental. So there's two systems of thoughts here. Okay. I'm not going to go too into depth, but basically we have... Earth and water kind of combine together in Tibetan medicine. Okay. So we call this pagan. So this is just earth and water. It's mm-hmm. heavy. It's sticky. It's smooth. Mm. It's stable. It's cool. It's cold. You know, it sinks. It's that kind of quality. So if you're familiar with Ayurveda, that's kapha, right? Kapha, yeah. And then we have fire, which is simply fire, right? We call this tipa. And the other term for that is pitta, right, in Ayurveda. Mm -hmm. And then in our system, we have wind, which is lung, which might be air in another system, or vata in Ayurveda. And then you have what you named earlier, ether, we call space, namka. So namka, space is omnipresent. So back to that original statement where I said that you have to have all five elements and karmic propensity Mm -hmm. driving you forward. Yeah. That space is there to support the other elements. So that's why, like, if you look from the Buddhist, five Buddhist families, the Buddha family is really that spaciousness. So it allows the air to move. Space allows fire to development. It allows the ground to exist. Mm -hmm. Because without space... There's nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So space is omnipresent. Okay. And so we're primarily dealing with like a combination of earth and water together, fire, tipa singly, and lung or wind or vata. Wow, that's so good. I love it. I was told I'm like two parts pit. I'm very fiery is what I've been told by other people. I mean, I'm fiery, so I <laughs> I don't mind it. I mean, you got to watch out because it's an edge. You can burn yeah. yourself out. You can really overproduce and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes people mistake your sort of inspiration as aggression, 
Like, you can be very clear if you're a fire person. Like, this is what needs to happen. But clarity kind of cuts through sometimes. It can cut. And so you have to be careful what you're dealing with and if you're Mm -hmm. being skillful about it. You know, I guess that's important in all things, really, being skillful. Awesome. So what are the similarities of Western and Eastern medicine? What are some of the things that you notice that they've adopted and use? You know, it was really interesting when I was um, started teaching the nutrition course, I found this study and it was talking about within the duodenum that there are gusto receptors within the duodenum that were newly identified. Mm-hmm. And so that essentially means there's taste buds in the first portion of your small intestine. What? Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Tibetan medicine has said that continuously since the 8th century. And Western medicine is now confirming that. So a lot of these concepts of like leaky guts, leaky Mm. brain, microbiome, all of those things are intrinsically seen within Tibetan medicine. Wow. And then also we have things that are explained for diseases that aren't necessarily well understood in the West. Okay. And so like we have known for centuries in Asian medicine, for example, that if you can control the breath, then you can alleviate a lot of symptoms of inflammation, anxiety. You can make a lot of changes. So now Western medicine is starting to see that you can work with the 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, and you can do diaphragmatic yogic breathing or Tibetan exercise breathing, and it changes everything. Mm. What I find is that they're actually, they're not so different. It's more like Western science is now confirming what a lot of Eastern medicine has known. So like, you just wait. I'm telling you, (laughs) cardamom is going to be the next turmeric because it's common. I know it's Mm -hmm. common. So it's like whenever I see these things, we're like, they've now discovered blah, blah. You know, (laughs) and it's like, yeah, we knew that. We knew that about pomegranate. We knew that about turmeric. We knew that about ginger. So I have that same feeling where Eastern medicine has known things for centuries, but Western medicine is now just quantifying it through science scientifical pursuits and or medical pursuits where they're actually realizing like, wow, this actually works. Yeah. This is how it works. But they're clarifying it. Eastern medicine is like, uh, yeah, we've, that's was like in our scriptures for like 3000 years now or even longer. But it's fabulous. I think it's great because it's helping people who want to have those really accurate tests. So like what I tell my students in both my classes on mm-hmm. my first day is like, look, you're all here at Naropa because you want to think outside of the box yeah. and you want to provide solutions outside of the box. And the world needs you. The world needs you to do that. Mm. And that's why I teach there yeah. because I want to foster that. So you need students to be able to relate to both containers. So they have to know the Western medicine and they have to have these basic biological concepts Mm -hmm. so that they can speak intelligently to other people to help bridge. You know, I see myself a lot as like a bridge where Mm -hmm. I'm helping people to see that it's not Eastern versus Western, but it's like a conversation that we can have together to see how we can best support. Because sometimes I'll see people and I'll say like, absolutely, I want you to go to the doctor I want you to have this test, this test, and this test. And then sometimes I'll say, no, I don't necessarily agree with that. Can you have your doctor call me and we'll have a decision about it? Like, we'll talk about it. So I think it's about having a really well-versed 
conversation. Yes. But to do that requires knowledge in both areas. And they spend so much time learning all the facts. I mean, just to go to medical school, I can't even imagine the effort. (laughs) I mean, I I did it in my way, but like in the Western model, and it's always changing. And there's a lot of repeated information that you have to just regurgitate. Yeah. And I think that the challenge is then to try and think in a different way is really hard. But the people who study with me who are like Western trained doctors or nurses or, you know, somebody else in the healthcare field, once they can start to think on the element level again, then they can start to change that. So what I'm trying to do at Naropa is I'm trying to say like, think this way, but you also need to connect it. Like you need, like one Mm -hmm. of the things I like to do is try and teach my undergrad students how to prepare to write an abstract so that they can know how to present something, like to present a paper at a conference so that we can start having larger conversations, you know, on the global level, really, Mm -hmm. about how we can connect these two and make them work together. Yeah, I love that idea of bringing them together so they're taking the best of one, taking the best of other, because there's so many different things that the Eastern has that the Western doesn't, the Western has that the Eastern doesn't. So I love that idea of bringing it together. And I'm actually curious, how many times do you actually talk to a Western doctor from a patient that you have? And they're like, I've never thought of it that way. You really know what's going on. I didn't really know what to expect when I talked to you. Like, are they ever just kind of curious about what's going on with you? They are. I'd say, you know, I've been doing this for a couple of decades. And when I first started working, you know, you'd say, have your doctor call me and they would never call me. But then sometimes I've had situations where the doctor was like, I want to talk to her. And I'm like, okay, have them call me. And they actually do. Yeah. And they want to talk about it. And they, they are sort of, I think, pleasantly surprised with mm-hmm. what I understand and how I can connect it. Yeah. You know, for example, I had somebody that was having bona fide heart attacks. They had... Oh the blood work that showed that they were having cardiac muscle damage Mm -hmm. and they didn't know why they had no occlusions. They had no hypertension. They had no cholesterol, like Mm -hmm. no logical reason whatsoever that they should have them. So they didn't know what to give. They couldn't give blood thinners because she didn't have cholesterol. They couldn't give, you know, hypertensive medicine because she would have hit the floor because she was already low blood pressure. So they didn't know why. And so back to the subtle body, I was like, okay, Lung or wind has entered incorrectly into your heart chambers, and that's mm-hmm. why this is occurring. So we took it from a dietary and lifestyle approach with some herbs on the side, mm-hmm. and they got better. And, you know, they were having them regularly, like multiple times every few months, like wow. small, very tiny ones, but now they don't. And I remember that the cardiologist was like, I want to talk to her, and I was like, oh, okay, how am I going to explain this? But then when I explained to them, like, okay, so we're looking at – the autonomic nervous system level here and the autonomic nervous system level has been infected. And so for that reason, dysregulation is occurring. So when I can use that kind of languaging, which is what I'm trying to teach my students, then they can understand, okay, she knows what she's talking about. They don't necessarily need to understand why I'm doing what I'm doing or how I'm doing it, but they know that I'm treating with the correct sort of mechanism of action in mind. Yeah. So that's really important. Okay. So, There seems to be like a reoccurring idea of breath in the body and how that helps regulate our well-being. Can you explain more about that? Like how breath is regenerating ourself and how important that is? Wow, that's almost like a whole podcast in itself. (laughs) But um, breath from a meditation point of view, right? 
breath is like the object of support. It's the most obvious object of support because it's there with us all the time, right? And then from a medical point of view, right, we need the oxygen to keep our cells going Mm -hmm. and to pump our blood. And then from the nervous system point of view, the breath can actually change dysregulation within the nervous system. Hmm. So we can actually affect inflammation without medication just using the breath. I've never heard that before. That's cool. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, because the vagus nerve, actually the vagal nerve comes down and it innervates through the whole system. So the rest and digest that Uh has to happen throughout the intestines and the motility that has to occur is really dependent on the health of the nervous system. One of the easiest ways to affect that is through breath. And so Mm. when people, ancient people were doing yogic practices, they learned by controlling their breath or moving their breath in certain ways, they could again affect the subtle body and all of those elements. So you have different breath that can, for example, heat up your metabolism and help you to like I'm sure you've heard of the yogis that like melt wet colds, you know, cloths uh, out in the snow. Oh, tumo. It's, it's tumo. Tum- tumo. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So the the friction of breath within the body is generating heat. I was really into that as like a mid twenty year old. I was like, uh-huh. what is going on? They're melting ice. Yeah. And then likewise you can do things to calm yourself down. Yep. So there's something called the bar lung, which bar means between in mm-hmm. Tibetan. And lung, of course, is like the movement of the wind or the breath. Yeah. So when you hold that particular breath in a certain way, it slows down your whole cardio tone. So the more there are some systems of thought that you have so many heartbeats and then you're done, or so many breaths in your life and then you're done. So if you can slow that Whoa. down and you can slow Mm. things down, Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. you can really affect your lifespan. And then from like a cosmological point of view, right, we say that there's wind in our central channel, in our life force channel. So I'm sure most people have seen like a picture of the chakras. In Tibetan system, most of the time we have only five. The Ayurvedic system has seven. Mm -hmm. So there's a little difference there. And it depends on what tantra you're reading, really. Yeah. But when we move the breath, we can affect that channel too. So there's some really basic, um, like the nine purification breathing practices I teach a lot because that clears the main channel and the two side branch channels. So those are the first kind of three. And then it goes out to those (laughs) 84,000, right? So you can like really affect holding the wind apart. Uh So one part has to be held up at the head Uh and the other part, four fingers below the label, Right. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of in the secret chakra and the secret place. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so it's thought that as we're getting ready to die, that they come down and when they meet the heart, which is where the mind is, that that's when we leave. That's when our consciousness exits. So if you can strengthen and there's different ways that you can strengthen that channel and that breath so that it's Mm -hmm. very vibrant. Breath is one and nutrition is another. So meditation practices, breathing practices, and basic nutrition practices are all ways to increase lifespan. So that's another reason that I think it's really important to connect all of these basic things to like medicine. They're basic, but they're not necessarily the first things we go to sometimes. Like, I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're taught basic nutrition of how turmeric and cardamom and ginger and garlic and all these 
very amazing herbs can help us on a daily level and just integrate it into our practice, into our life, into our everyday diet, what we do and what we eat. And, and even the breath, how often are we told like the breath is life? You know, we know this, but every breath we take, are we realizing like, I only got 200 more until I'm yeah. gone. You, know <laughs> you have more mean? than 200, don't worry. <laughs> I mean, hopefully. But yeah. has anyone done any studies on that? Of, oh, of, yeah. Like, what is an average number of breaths that a person may have in their life? Do I we, can't remember the number. A couple million or something? No, or? it's, um, can't remember. There is an exact number. Really? In the Tibetan system, there's an exact number. Okay. And I'm fairly certain you would find that in Ayurvedic too. I just can't remember. I've never heard that. That, yeah. that just like sparked my brain. I was just like, oh my gosh, like you're probably totally right. And how many breaths do we all have left? Well, I mean, it's like, you know, for example, I have a three-year-old and, mm-hmm. you know, she's at that stage where sometimes she reverts to a nonverbal pile of crying. And, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> I tell her like, okay. And I put my hand on her belly and I'm like, breathe into your belly. Mm. <sighs> Breathe out your feeling. Breathe in. I see you're upset. Breathe out. Mm. You know, so it's like I think it can be taught, and I think that more and more people are are learning about the regulation of the nervous system and and linking it to breath. And there's yeah. certainly a lot of studies about that. And I think that it's also very possible that we teach people about these basic like cooking spices, and it's becoming more well known. Yeah. And like my kids know all the time, like. You eat this for this and this for that. So, I mean, they're just in the kitchen with me all the time, like learning it or making medicine with me. And they're like, oh, isn't that like just a spice? And I'm like, yeah, it's also a medicine. So, Uh yeah, yeah. Because most medicines are, they come from a spice or an Mm -hmm. herb. Exactly. But then they're like, they add a bunch of other stuff that might produce this or invoke this in the body or. Exactly. And one of the things I do in my nutrition course is I actually assign everybody like one herb, one spice Hmm. and one food. And then they have to research it and like what it does on a scientific point of view. And then they have to give a presentation to everyone (laughs) so that everyone benefits from, you know, 25 people giving times three rather than me just espousing what it does. It actually teaches them to like Mm -hmm. learn how to research. What does research actually look like? And then how do you document that? How do you like make it officially like scientific literature? I love that. And then also like what they discover is they're like, wow, I had no idea that it did this. And Mm. it's like, yeah, and it's in your kitchen cabinet yep how often does an herb or some sort of food medicinal medicine need to be combined with something else to be potent in the body compared to like just take a capsule of straight turmeric compared to oh to get the micro nutrients out of this you need to cut it and leave it in the heat and then cook it mm-hmm. or how often does that happen with food That's one difference between Western medicine and ancient medicine is that I think traditional, even Western herbalism Mm -hmm. understands a synergistic effect. So we might know that turmeric has active compounds that are really good for anti-inflammation. However, what happens when you just remove those compounds? Mm. Or like if we look at white willow bark, right, for example, and then that was turned into aspirin. So is white willow bark 
also have other compounds in it that make it equally effective. So like mm. cinnamon is another example. People know that cinnamon can actually lower blood sugar for people who are sort of pre-diabetic or diabetic. So okay. you know that you have to monitor insulin levels if you're taking higher levels of cinnamon. It can change your A1C over time. So if you just take those compounds, what are you perhaps missing on a synergistic effect for everything else? And I think there was, I saw an article that just came out a couple of weeks ago, maybe, that they just identified like 2,000 new microbes in the gut. So you're just, you've got to wonder like, (laughs) what are those other compounds doing that we don't know about? And are they actually making things more effective? So one of the things that ancient medicine does is saying that something happens when you take this quality of the earth and the water is this heavy, it has like 17%, but then you need more fire. So you're going to take this herb, which has like 30% fire. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like that precise in Tibetan medicine. Yeah. When you're compounding medicine, And so it's really different. So I think that, you know, for me, food is medicine. And there's four methods of treatment in Tibetan medicine. Mm -hmm. There's diet, behavior, medicine, and accessory therapy. So like acupuncture, vapor baths, hot springs, meibum, which is cupping. Yeah, sweating. Many things. Many, many, yeah, yeah. All sorts of stuff. And so diet and behavior are fundamental. Mm -hmm. They're like standing on your own. If you go to a doctor and you're like, I don't know, I just get bloated, I have this, I have that, and they're like, here's this medicine, that only can go so far. You're essentially standing on one leg. And you're still eating the stuff that's probably... Causing the problem. Yep. So nobody gets out of my office mm-hmm. or my classes. <laughs> like, what are you eating? Yeah, what are you eating? And let's like, uh-huh. you know, and it goes one of two ways. Like when I give them the list mm-hmm. of like what they should or shouldn't eat, either they're like, oh my God, I'm eating all the wrong things. Or, oh my God, like everything you're telling me to avoid, pretty much, like 75% of it, I already don't like or don't feel good when I eat. So then there's like this intrinsic knowing. So the other thing is about teaching people to know themselves, like on a really intimate level. Like like you said, like, oh, I'm told I'm fire. And it's like, we'll embrace that. Uh So we we look at things from the root poison, from the Buddhist point of view, like Mm -hmm. the root poison of fire is aggression, right? But it can also be like... (laughs) transcended into Uh a wisdom of like discriminating awareness Mm. so it's like it doesn't have we don't have to avoid this idea of like anger is bad yeah you know it's like no actually it's clarifying Mm -hmm. it's let's like like open this to the wisdom state cuts through Mm -hmm. if you do it right so if you apply the right diet and behavior then what you're getting is the more wisdom state so Mm. essentially i consider myself a guide and i'm saying this is who you are fundamentally yeah You live in this season, you have this climate, you have this. Be careful in the winter of this, look out for this in the summer. And thinking in a nutritional terms of saying you can eat this in the summer and not the winter is like unheard of in the West. (laughs) You know, but it's like it's fundamental in the East. But they sell it at Whole Foods all year. Yeah. My raw green fruit (laughs) smoothie for breakfast. And I'm like, no. Uh, Well, I've I've actually been told that smoothies aren't good because you're blending it all together. And you're not getting the actual nutrition out of the food you're eating? Well, there's two stages to digestion. There's like the mechanical you're, you're, in your mouth. You're dousing your agni. Yeah, you're dousing your you internal can. fires. Most there. of the time that is true. Your digestive fire when you take a smoothie first thing in the morning 
you're making it, it like with a banana, which is heavy Squashing and cold and sweet. Hunger. Yeah. Right. And you're throwing in like some protein powder, which may or may not be well absorbed. Mm. And you've got like frozen berries and it's cold. <laughs> and you know, your stomach is like a cauldron. Like, are you going to cook something and then like throw it all in the pot and then turn on the heat? Or are you going to like saute it mm. with your ghee and put in your spices yep. and then do all of your vegetables and then yeah. like do it that way? So your stomach is like that. So when you get up and you drink ice cold water or yeah. they bring you your cold salad before your meal, you're essentially killing your digestive fire. Mm. And so we now know with Western medicine, <laughs> that that's affecting the microbiome and the digestive enzymes can't function. So it's, yeah, so it's, it's really about like retraining. It's like, I don't necessarily take my smoothies away from certain people. Like if you're fire, yeah. you can have a smoothie, but have it at noon yep. when the fire Maybe energy is the strongest at room, room temperature. temperature. Mm-hmm. And I actually put cayenne pepper yep. and cinnamon and I was told, okay, fine. You can drink your smoothie if you add that. And ginger maybe. Yeah. And some pomegranate, maybe. I do ginger as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, and some cardamom, maybe. You wow. Know? There's yeah. so many different things you can add in there. Yeah. But it's a really interesting perspective to have to not, like, just mix all your food together and just blend it up. And it's just this stuck-together drink that you're drinking, and it's everything all at once. And it's kind of cold, and it kind of mm-hmm. kills your fires on the inside, so you can't digest it. So you think you're not hungry, but your body's saying, I'm hungry, but it's your fire's right. done. Yeah, and like Chinese medicine has five tastes, and Ayurveda and Tibetan medicine has six. Okay. So like there's a difference there, and also like the taste factors, like you can have something like Brussels sprouts are really great. Mm -hmm. They're really nutritious. They have lots of great qualities for them. But if you have a cold digestion, not going to be so good because bitter as a taste increases cold, right? Okay. So the people that are eating Brussels sprouts thinking they're really good for them and they're like, I just don't feel good. I'm bloated. like a promoter. Yeah. So you have to like look and see like, am I hot? Am I cold? Mm. Like what's my digestion doing? How does that relate with my inner elements? Like how can I support the best me possible with my diet and behavior? And then you don't need the doctor. I mean the best doctors are not needed. Like we're like, see ya, call me if you have a cold. Well, you're empowering people to make good decisions from their diet, from their health, from their like even emotions, mm-hmm. you know, being a, like a holistic approach to healing and not just like take this medicine and you'll be fine. And it's like, well, maybe that medicine actually contradicts the diet I already currently have. Mm-hmm. So I, I love this approach. It's It just has who are you, mm-hmm. you know, and it has this investigation instead of like a what's going on. Yeah. And and yet, at the same time, we have to have a basic background of like anatomy and physiology of yes. understanding like this is going to be how motility of stool works. <laughs> like this is how A gets to B. Yep. You know, this is how your blood takes the red blood cells and divides them and, yeah. you know, recycles them in the spleen. Mm. So all of those things are also kind of like really profoundly important to know. And then when you overlay that with understanding who you are as an individual, you can find the optimal place. Yes. So. Uh, it's just so good to speak with you. That is our time. But before we go, is there anything you would like to say of how people can reach you, how people can find more information of what you speak about and just shout out a website or whatever that you got. 
Um, well, I have two websites. I have a blog where I, I write stuff when I have time. <laughs> Do uh, you have time? Not so much. All right. I, I teach all over the country, so nice. and a lot of them are online, so people can mm. kind of go in. The best way to sort of follow me and what I'm doing and the most updated is the Facebook world. Okay. So Tibetan Medicine and Holistic Healing or my name, Nishala Jean Yinda. So I'm super Googleable. Is that a word? Googleable. Um, I but like I, that. But I also have a blog. It's bouldertibetanmedicine.com. And then we have, like, the clinic website is holistic-health.org. So if you're local, I do teach meditation at the Trangu, Rocky Mountain Trangu Center. Okay. And then I'm also very frequently teaching up at SMC. And yeah, kind of all over. But really, okay. most of my teachings are posted through Facebook. That's the most sort of updated because I have help with someone doing that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much yeah. for sharing your knowledge, your passion. It, you just sound like you have such a unique direction of medicine and just medicinal knowledge. And it was just really fun to speak with you and just hear about all this. And I have this like weird kind of passion growing in myself about it. And you've like sort of ignited it a little bit more. And it just seems really empowering to understand that food and breath and emotions and situations and things that you surround yourself with is health. Everything yeah. resorts back to that. And you just kind of like knock that in a little bit harder for me. And Good. I'm glad. <laughs> feels empowering. Excellent. It really does. Yeah. And, you know, I think in terms of Naropa is a really unique place because it provides people the opportunity to really sit in that space and discover who they are hmm. and then learn to be non-judgmental about it, which is like key. Yeah. And so I think it's a great place to go and learn about ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing with me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to thank my guest again, Nishala Nienda, who is an adjunct faculty member teaching in the Department of Contemplative Psychology at Naropa, and she also practices and teaches Tibetan medicine and acupressure. So thanks again. Thanks. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.